This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's difficult to diagnose and can be hard to treat. We'll talk about how you can protect yourself from Lyme disease this season. And what is the future of food? We'll dig into that in a few minutes. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. CARP, Canada's largest advocacy group for older Canadians, is calling for a public inquiry into the growing crisis of abuse and untimely deaths in nursing homes. This after former nurse Elizabeth Wetloffer pleaded guilty to murdering eight of her long-term care patients and attempting to kill four others. A former Nazi SS sergeant who was convicted on 170,000 counts of accessory to murder has died without serving any jail time. Reinhold Hanning was a guard at Auschwitz, and his conviction last year was hailed as a long overdue victory for Holocaust victims. He died at 95 while his case was being appealed. June 1st marked the 50th anniversary of the release of what some call the most important rock and roll album ever made, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. With the music world celebrating the milestone of the Beatles' landmark album, there are new details about the Canadian police officer who inspired the title. The real-life Sergeant Pepper was a straight-laced, no-nonsense Ontario provincial police officer from Aurora, named Sergeant Randall Pepper. He forged an unlikely friendship with the band while running their security detail during a 24-hour visit to Toronto in 1966. Singer and actress Olivia Newton-John has announced that her breast cancer has returned and spread to her lower back, and she's postponing her U.S. and Canada tour dates. The 68-year-old recovered from her first bout of breast cancer 25 years ago and has since become an advocate for healthy living and medical research. She hopes to return to work later this year. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's difficult to diagnose and can have devastating consequences unless it's caught early. The number of cases of Lyme disease is ballooning in Canada, and the government just promised $4 million for research and treatment. What do we need to know to protect ourselves? Dr. Vet Lloyd is a researcher and a patient. Lyme disease is notoriously hard to diagnose. Why is that? 
it's caused by bacteria. Where the bacteria goes in the body determines what symptoms you get. So if it goes into your brain, you start getting neurological symptoms. If it goes into your joints, you've got arthritic symptoms. So it is a challenge for your doctor to look at all these weird symptoms and say, oh, that could be Lyme disease when it could be so many other things. To deal with that, they rely on a blood test. The blood test is a commercial test and it has limitations. There are times where it can't detect Lyme bacteria and it detects only our response to the bacteria. So sometimes it doesn't work and it's very specific. It only detects certain types of bacteria, but not all of them. I gather that it also doesn't work right after you've been bitten. But That's correct. on the other hand, the key to successful treatment is early treatment. That's exactly right. So in that sense, yeah, it, it, there's a huge gap with what to do with people right after they've been bitten. And if you see the tick in a way disgusting as it is, that's lucky because then you can get it out of you and you can report that to your doctor. If you have a rash, some people do, but not everyone by any means, then again, uh, doctors familiar with Lyme disease will recognize that the rash can look all different ways, but if you know there's a tick and a rash, okay, fine. But without that, if you didn't see the tick, if you don't get a rash, then it's a real problem to diagnose. If you see the tick, what do you do? Do you pull it off? Yes, that's an excellent idea. There's actually grown up to be quite a bit of lore about how to get the tick out. And really, simple is best. If you have tweezers on you, grab it close to the head. Just pull slowly and smoothly away from the skin. If you find that's too revolting or it's a part of your body you can't reach, then you may have to go to clinic and get doctors or nurses to help you take it out. It's important to keep the tick so that if stuff comes up afterwards, at least you still have the tick for testing. There are some people who say that if you've been bitten by a tick, uh, it might be a good idea to get prophylactic antibiotics before you know whether or not you have Lyme disease. Yeah, and that works on the principle that if the tick was infected and if it fed from you for long enough, then your chances of getting Lyme disease depend on whether or not that tick was infected. And do you want to play Russian roulette with your health? The public health approach is a statistical approach basically saying, well, if the rate of infection is high here, we'll go for it, and if not, we won't. But when it comes down to you and the one tick on you, you may not be comfortable with the statistics because if that tick was infected, that's 100% for you. The problem with the prophylactic antibiotics is they only work right after the tick was found. Right after meaning what? Uh, with, within a day or two, the, the effectiveness of the single dose goes down dramatically after 24 hours, and it's not useful after the tick started feeding three days ago. So after three days from the start of feeding, it doesn't work. I was uh, talking to another doctor who said, you know, for her opinion was that a preventive dose should be three weeks of antibiotics. That's certainly the safer approach. There's also a big controversy about whether untreated Lyme disease can cause chronic illnesses. We hear from people who say they're completely debilitated. Where there is controversy is if you've treated it and you don't get better, 
does that mean that you didn't treat it long enough or does it mean that the bacteria caused damage and what you're looking at is damage from the time that the bacteria was allowed to run rampant in your body? And it's actually very hard to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, you suffered greatly, correct? Yes, I thought it was devastating for me, and yet I talk to people who have dealt with far worse for far longer. But really, it is a preventable disease. It is a treatable disease. We're not talking about a cancer here. We're talking about something that can be treated with an antibiotic that is a really low-risk intervention and inexpensive. So in that sense, I don't think anyone should be suffering from Lyme disease. But is it just a matter of awareness, particularly on the part of doctors who haven't seen cases and just kind of miss it? That plays a role. Also, the fact that ticks are very small and often people will not see the tick bite, which means that you don't even start to think about ticks until everything else has been ruled out. So really something that's very important that people can do and should do is that if you've been out hiking, if you've been out in a nice lush garden, at the end of the day, strip off and check yourself for ticks. They're small, but if you suddenly see a mole you didn't have or a freckle that you didn't have the day before, and if that mole or freckle has legs, (laughs) that's bad, and remove it. Okay, what about some people go to the States to have this treated or send their blood to the States to have it tested? That's very common because of the difficulty in diagnosis and the difficulty in getting treated in Canada. What is your reaction to uh, the government's program to spend $4 million for uh, better treatment and research? It's good that they're paying attention to Lyme disease, and there's some good stuff in the framework about prevention and education. I'm happy to see that. For treatment and diagnostics, they're basically going to continue doing what they have been doing. That's been grossly inadequate. So in that sense, I've been profoundly disappointed. Okay. Dr. Lloyd, thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. That was Dr. Vet Lloyd of Mount Allison University. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. When we return, the future of food. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. It has the potential to nourish our creativity as well as our bodies. And one day, healthcare professionals will be able to write personalized prescriptions for food based on our genetic makeup, just as they've started to do with medications. I chatted with food futurist Dr. Erwin Adam ahead of his appearance at Idea City 2017. You're here to tell us about. The future of food, as the commercial goes, is the future friendly. The future is friendly, but I think that's super dependent on what we do to make it. We are at an incredible time right now in our history where we are transforming every aspect of our society, and food is no doubt one of those pieces. Um, And we're seeing huge transformations in our understanding of what is food, um, how we produce food, how we transform food, and how we experience food. And we're beginning to realize more and more the responsibilities each of us has as individuals in the way that evolves. You would be so shocked, though, that the choices you make 
in the grocery store and the choices you make about what you actually put in your mouth, how that affects the entire ecosystem of what food is today. You know, we we have a system that currently uses a lot of large-scale production in order to create food. But by making choices that are erring on the side of more sustainability or erring on the side of, you know, more conscious eating, we are actually shifting that supply chain to start being something that works a little bit more cohesively with the way, you know, the environment works, the way that our society would look to improve itself as well. Give me some concrete Yeah, sure. So there are some stretch goals out there in food today. So I think one of the big areas is around what is food. And let's jump in a specific one that probably everyone can relate to, which is steak, right? Most people, if they're not vegetarian, they have a penchant for steak. People like steak. Um, It's a staple in a lot of homes. But we don't necessarily think about what the impact of eating a steak is on the world around us, right? So we know that it takes about 15,000 kilograms of water to produce one kilogram of steak. So this isn't necessarily the most sustainable way of producing a food product that we need. There are problems with eating beef. We've had talks about growing meat in a lab that's not meat from a cow. Right. So we know that about 70% of our arable land is also used in order to feed cows. So using this as a specific example, people have started saying, okay, how do we shift our protein requirements, the ways we feed ourselves with protein and build our muscles and our our bodies away from beef as a source or even meats as a source? And that started to open up all these diverse businesses and technologies around new proteins. So example you just brought up is a perfect one is, okay, well, what happens if we move production from the farm into a laboratory? Again, that's a very far-reaching goal in reality, but it's an important mindset to understand, hey, there are opportunities to move away from these very unsustainable practices. Other areas would include, you know, there's a big movement today in working with vegetable proteins and looking how we can derive better protein sources from things that are grown from the ground uh, in a more sustainable way. You have a scientific background, engineering, biology, technology. What do you do in your lab? Sure. So Future Food Studio is a food design technology studio where we think about all things around food experience. And so that's really how we interact with food, how we engage with food. And really, we are considering at all times the relationships we have around food. So that can range from the creation of new things that we actually eat to the tools and implements around that all the way up to large-scale spaces and places. But underlying all of the work that we do is this notion of creating food intention and food consciousness but through delight. So we try to create these experiences for people to have little moments of pause to actually consider what it means to eat. So we have these clouds that are kind of exactly what you imagine a cloud looks like, but it's contained within a glass vessel that we're able to pour and we can sip and we can drink. And so notionally from a very just immediate perspective, you know, it's something interesting and cool because it's not something people have experienced before. Right? We can flavor these clouds in any which way and then actually use them to you know, pour into a glass and then sip on, and you will start to stimulate your senses of taste and smell and experience a flavor of something that doesn't really exist. So for us, those experiences are entry points to getting a little bit deeper into food thinking. So you know, on that very surface level, people can say, hey, this is awesome, super fun, but then they start to ask, well, how does this work? 
And so then we started getting into the narrative around, okay, well, this is actually a physical thing that's being created within this vessel, et cetera, et cetera. And then they start to ask, well, why does this exist? And that's actually the point that we try to bring all of the people who interact with our installations to. You know, in this case, it really stemmed from an exploration of the physiology of taste and smell and looking at how we can reproduce um, a product like a beverage that, you know, something very familiar to us, reproduce it in an aspect that isn't familiar to us and actually makes us think. And so when we start looking at the physiology of eating, we know that when we chew, we generate these tiny little uh, droplets that then, you know, we start to sense through our nasal passage at the back of our throats. And this is actually where we experience the 10 to 20,000 different flavors that we can differentiate between. So in this sense, we've created a physical object that actually begins to allow people to understand what that process actually looks like. Within the next 20 years, what changes are going to be evident on my dinner table? The piece that I'm the most excited about and something that comes a lot from my PhD research, which was in personalized medicine, um, is really about looking at how we as individuals will start to have more information about how food impacts us as individuals, right? As we start to learn more about ourselves, you know, we start having wearable technologies. We're beginning to have more and more ways to interpret what's going on inside our bodies. Um, that is being matched with the foods we consume. And so as soon as we start to close those loops between the foods we consume and the way they affect our bodies in a way that we actually can understand, um, I think we're going to be so much more empowered in the decision making we make around eating. Okay. Thanks so much. I'm uh, looking forward to your talk at Idea City. Thanks so much for having me today. Dr. Erwin Adam will appear at Idea City on Wednesday, June 14th. You can get tickets at ideacity.ca slash tickets. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, we celebrate Dan Hill's birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review. I'll think Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. A theater company made up of deaf and blind actors is pulling in the crowds in the Israeli seaport of Jaffa. Performances at the Nalagat Theater Company are staged through speech and sign language, and cues are given by a drumbeat, which the actors feel rather than hear. Now on at Amsterdam's iFilm Museum, its first major exhibition to focus on Martin Scorsese's work, life, and passion. Virtually all of Scorsese's films are being screened over the next month. In London, the musical On the Town is drawing crowds to Regent Park's open-air theater. It plays through July 1st. And in Sydney, Australia, the city's iconic opera house lights up with imaginary animals as part of the Vivid Sydney Light Festival. Last year's festival drew more than 2 million people and brought in $82 million for the local economy. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. 
This weekend, Canadian singer-songwriter Dan Hill is celebrating his 63rd birthday. Dan is a good friend of ours here at Zoomer Radio, a frequent guest in our studios, and he's even performed for us in a special live-to-air concert. Dan's music career began in the 70s. His first album, simply titled Dan Hill, was released in 1975 and featured the hit single You Make Me Want to Be. Two years later, he wrote and released a song that would change his life, Sometimes When We Touch. It was the first of his two major international hit songs. The second came in 1987 when he recorded the duet Can't We Try with Vonda Shepard. But outside of his own recordings, Dan Hill has had tremendous success as a songwriter. Celine Dion, Rod Stewart, Britney Spears, the Backstreet Boys, Donny Osmond, Tina Turner, Reba McIntyre, and Alan Jackson are just a few of the artists who have recorded his songs. He won a Grammy for his work on Celine Dion's Falling Into You album, as well as five Juno Awards and the Harold Moon Award, which honors a Canadian for a lifetime of songwriting achievement. Right now, we'll hear a bit of Dan Hill's fantastic songwriting. This is his own version of the 1977 hit, Sometimes When We Touch. You ask me if I love you. That was Dan Hill with Sometimes When We Touch. Dan is celebrating his birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.